This is episode 276 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life. Today's articles are, What Does the End of the World Mean for Preppers? Selco, What We Ate and How We Got Food When the SHTF? And Conflicted, Pandemic Unknowns, What Would You Do? Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Everyone, welcome to episode 276. I'd like to welcome also our new listeners. And if you are not subscribed, make sure you do that in iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast network. And that way you never miss another episode of the Prepper Website Podcast. Hey, a couple of things before we get going here. Um, I've been talking about all this month the Survival Hack Tactical Flashlight. Um, they gave me a coupon code. So for Prepper Website readers and listeners, uh, a coupon code for the month of March and you get their tactical flashlight. It's a 1000 lumen flashlight with the rechargeable battery and the charger for $9.99 from Amazon once you you use the coupon code. So I have that linked in the show notes. And again, that's only for the month of March, which is very, very quickly uh, coming to an end. And so uh, if you haven't been able to get get on that deal, you don't want to miss it. It's a a nice little flashlight. I, I highly recommend it. Definitely for $9.99. Hey, one more thing. I uh, I heard today, I saw an article, decided to read it on YouTube shutting down firearms uh, YouTube channels. And that's a big, big blow to the, definitely to the firearms. And I mean, there's people that have made their whole channel is nothing about but firearms. And so, you know, YouTube is going to just shut them down. And that's also a blow to the preparedness community because there's a lot of people out there that do YouTube videos for the preparedness community. They do some survival, uh, bushcrafting, those types of things. But they also do some firearms as well. And so I don't know if they would wind up shutting down all their videos or just uh, or the, all their channels or just their videos or how that would work. In the article, one, uh, one YouTube channel was going to Pornhub. And I definitely do not recommend going to Pornhub. I don't think it's going to work out as good for this guy as he thinks it's going to. Because there's a lot of people that watch firearms videos that don't want to see all that other stuff. But which lends to the fact that there really needs to be a good alternative. Somebody with some money could possibly make a really great alternative to YouTube. And do uh, you know do a, la- a lot of damage to their bottom line. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. This is one of those things where we talk about in the preparedness community. You've, you've heard me talk about it as well. Um, we, we use social media. It is kind of like a necessary evil. There's a lot of people on Facebook. There's a lot of people that go to YouTube. There's a lot of people that, that are on social media. But when you build your whole uh, website or your whole following off of that, then you are at the whim of Facebook. And if Facebook thinks that you are fake news or Twitter, you know, recently Twitter has started to... So Facebook and Twitter have gotten on this bandwagon of we're not going to allow any political party to use fake news to, to sway the election. And that's the excuse that they're using, but that's it's really crap because that's not the way that Donald Trump won. But what they're doing is they're, they're using that as an excuse 
to uh, bring in their rules and their regulations so that they can uh, stifle conservative thought and patriotic thought and people that are independent thinkers uh, and to shut them down. So the only buzz that is out there is whatever they want to allow, which is very, very scary, right? Because then you have these Facebook, like I said, there's a lot of people on Facebook. There's a lot of people on Twitter, uh, a lot of people on these social medias. And if that's all the news that they're getting. Now, those of you that are listening, most of you uh, that are listening have been prepping for a little while. Uh, You know the importance of the alternative news media. That's a big deal. In fact, actually, my conflicted uh, scenario is going to touch on this just a little bit. But, you know, a lot of people realize they're starting not to trust the, uh, the, the mainstream media, but they're still going into all these, you know, uh, social medias in their uh, influenced by the, the message over and over and over again. Not to mention the fact that there's some people that get on there and start talking and, and posting and they don't even know what they're talking about, really. So anyway, all that to say is that's one reason why I totally believe that the email list is very important because that's one way that I can communicate with you that is not you know based on anybody else's. That's not something that Facebook can take away or Twitter can take away. I have the websites, I have the podcast, and then I have the email list, right? And so that's one, those are ways that I can communicate with you that no one else can influence. And so not even the, the email list, I was also thinking about or not only just someone with some money coming in and making another solution to YouTube or something like that, or even Facebook. But uh, I was thinking the possibility of forums might become more popular as, as we see, you know, Facebook and Twitter and uh, YouTube, and they're starting to crack down, uh, quote unquote, crack, crack down on people who, you know, the conservative and, and, and the patriotic Second Amendment you know, free speech, all that kind of stuff, you know, that, that we normally in the preparedness community would, would go and, and watch and listen to and be a part of. Um, maybe forums might start making a comeback, you know. So anyway, that might be an idea out there. I, I've never wanted to run a forum. That's not something that I want to sit there and moderate. But uh, that might be something that might be in the future of the preparedness community just to uh, keep a uh, or have an ability to communicate Without making, uh, with, without letting you know somebody else dictate what you can share and what you can't share. But anyway, so just kind of wanted to drop my two cents on that on the on the YouTube thing. But it really is touching. It's a it's an overall trend that we're starting to see on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, I was I was starting to talk about Twitter, but Twitter recently uh, stopped the ability to uh, post multiple tweets. So if you had software that allowed you to send the same tweet over and over again at different times to Twitter, they stopped that. So, you know, a lot of people are saying it's a good thing, whatever, but, you know, it kind of hurts somebody like me that I can't be on social media all the time, but I send out information, I kind of have it on a loop, and so that that's going to hurt me as, on Twitter. Um, but, you know, I think it's all set up, it's all coming uh, to tamper down what is allowed before you know the elections, and so that they can do everything they can to sway the elections next time around. 
All right. So again, my that's I guess that's my three cents now. <laughs> All right. Our first article comes to us from PreppersWill.com, and the article is entitled "What Does the End of the World Mean for Preppers?" I think this is a very important article. Um, in one way and then in another way, I'm going to do something totally different than I've ever done before. So as I was reading this and looking at this, I think you know, one of the things about preparedness is that definitions are very, very important. Uh, or it, actually, when we talk about anything in, in, in life, definitions are important. So as you become uh, part of a group, part of a tribe, part of a community, there's certain words that everyone seems to understand. And when an outsider comes in, they might not understand it. So, for instance, uh, for those of you that have been preparing for a while, if I said Tiatwaki, you would know exactly what, I'm, what I mean. It's an acronym. Those of you that are new might not uh, know that. But Tiatwaki stands for the end of the world as we know it. And so that's just kind of one example. Another, you know, recently we talked about OPSEC. And, uh, you know, every, everybody in the preparedness community after a while understands what OPSEC means. It's just a, uh, another term that means operational security. And so when we start talking about, you know, the zombie apocalypse or the end of the world, or we start talking about those types of things, in, in the back of our minds as preppers, we understand what that means. But a lot of people that are new might not. So it takes them a little while of being part of the community, trying to understand that and uh, trying to, you know, maybe ask some questions if they feel like they can. Uh, that's one reason why I love our Facebook group, because you can ask questions if you're a newbie prepper and no one's going to sit and sit there and really uh, demean you. And if they did, I wouldn't allow it. I would ban them. So, uh, yeah, I think it's very, very important. So this article talks about what does the end of the world uh, mean for preppers. But what I'm going to do is I really want to, I'm going to read some portions of it and then I'm going to kind of bounce off of it. So hopefully you don't mind that. Um, if I'm gonna, like always, I'm going to link to the article and you can go check it out. But uh, let me just read the, the first paragraph. There's a couple of paragraphs here that I think are valuable. And then, um, like I said, I think the whole article is valuable, but I, I really just kind of want to bounce off of it. All of you believe that doomsday will come as a massive earth destruction or regional crisis that would change the world forever. And so, again, th that the first sentence there, where as it starts off, all of you believe. No, not all of us believe. Um, but anyway, the second sentence says this. So some people believe that the massive asteroid will hit the planet and so on. However, preparing for the end of the world shouldn't be taken literally. As a matter of fact, there are dozens of reasons why a person will have to prepare himself for doomsday. In the lack of... For a better word, let's just say that all of this depends on the individual matter. Different people see the end of the world in a different light. And so I think that paragraph is just basically saying everybody has their own opinion about what the end of the world might look like. And so let me just kind of bounce off of this just for, for a minute here. When we talk about the end of the world and we talk about doomsday, we definitely have that aspect of people that really truly mean the end of the world, like it's it's the end of the world that you know. And so it could be, you know, we're, right now we get up in the morning, we go to work, we, uh, you know, we, we punch the clock or, you know, if you do that or not, you take the kids to school, all that kind of stuff. You come home, you eat dinner, maybe you watch some TV, maybe you, you uh, surf prepper website for a little bit, maybe you get on the Facebook group, whatever, 
you uh, you know tuck your kids in at, at night, you read them a book, whatever. You uh, wake up the next morning and you rinse and repeat, and you do this over and over and over again, and that is your world. The end of the world from uh, a lot of people when we say that would mean that all that stops when we go back to a a time where we were foragers and we were hunter gatherers and and uh, we are surviving and we are uh, you know banding together in, in tribes and and we don't go to work anymore maybe we're working in the garden maybe we're hunting maybe we're uh, you know pulling security and, and all those kinds of things and that end of the world scenario for some people right that when they think of that could come in so many different ways right the big one that is always popular in the preparedness community and uh, no matter no matter what type of article it is um, I know that if I link it to an EMP article on prepper website I know it's going to be popular so EMPs uh, would would do that you know or solar flares would take us back to a lot of times people say the 18th century Maybe not the 18th, maybe the early 19th century. Um, you know, we we know a lot more now, but uh, we would there would be a, a lot of chaos. Um, people don't know how to live in in that way anymore. Um, there would be a big die off, all those kinds of things. World War Three, right? Nuclear war that kind of completely devastates the planet. Uh, the super volcano going off, going off, or Yellowstone, right? Going off, uh, having a major earthquake that like split um, you know, split the United States in half, right? Uh, let's just say the, uh, the Mississippi, you know, whatever the earthquake that, that happens cracks in half. And then as, as that happens, there's like five or six nuclear power plants on the Mississippi. And so those would all go as well. And so, you know, all those kinds of things, that's when people think about the end of the world uh, as we know it. Then you have people who um, think of, the end of the world is it's their own personal end of the world. And, and that can be that can take form in so many different ways. Right. That can be, um, you know, in this article touches on that just a little bit. Uh, that could be the the loss of a loved one. Right. Your spouse. You've lost your, your spouse that you've been married to for many years. You, uh, you know, you've loved each other for, for, you know, all this time and then all of a sudden they die on you uh, and then your, you know, you've, you, your world has come crashing down because you're so, that was all your world, right? So that could be one scenario there. Some people might take it as, when you talk about like individual preparedness, it could be something like a loss of a job. A loss of a job is a, is a really, um, you know, significant thing uh, nowadays because, you can lose a good paying job and not go and find a job that pays that same amount of money. And so you're scrambling. And so if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're having to take a pay cut, man, that could be the end of the world as you know it. Because you're going to start feeling stressed because the finances, you're not going to be able to pay everything. You're not going to be able to live the way that you live. You're going to have to start making some hard choices. Some people can roll with that very, very easily. And other people, like I said, it's, it would be the end of the world for them, right? Their whole, their whole life starts coming crashing down. They might have to give up their nice fancy car, their nice fancy house. They might have to move in with somebody, you know, whatever, whatever might happen. Um, that was actually one of the scenarios in my recent article, Survival for the Common Man, Financial Preparedness, was two scenarios where someone loses a job and they're living paycheck to paycheck and then they have to go 
and find a job right away. And so they have to take a, a very low paying job just to bring some money in versus someone who has an emergency fund who's been preparing. They have an emergency fund and so they don't have to go out and get that low paying job. They can look for a better paying job and so they have different options. And so that's that's part of it as well. So you have that end of the world as you know it for individuals. You get maybe you go to the doctor, maybe you get you have a health uh, checkup and uh, the doctor comes back that you have cancer. And, you know, a lot of people hear cancer nowadays, and that's a death sentence for them, uh, which it really doesn't have to be, but uh, because there's just so many advances in, in what they what we've learned. But a lot of people will, you know, take that and that, that's it. You know, that's the end of the world for me. And so you have that aspect of it for people there, the end of the world. And then some people just the end of the world is a term to mean that there is a disruption in their life. There's a so for some people, Hurricane Harvey, uh, maybe it wasn't the end of the world, but it was uh, a big situation that caused them to, you know, caused them to disrupted their life and caused them to have to go and and uh, take care of a whole bunch of different things that they weren't planning on. It disrupted their lives and and uh, you know they're having to leave work. I, I know people right now that have to leave work to go meet people that are fixing their homes and and they're on the phone with you know insurance companies and they're you know those types of things and so you have that aspect um for christians a lot of the times and this is one that really kind of gets on my nerves is they think of the end of the world and when they think of the end of the world they think of jesus coming back right the second coming and so a lot of the times you have christians who will say I don't need to prepare. Preparing is dumb because well, the, when the end of the world comes, then you know Jesus is going to be. I'm going I'm to go to heaven. You know why would I want to stock up food and water and all those types of things? Because you know the end of the world, I'm just going to go uh, go to heaven and all that stuff is just going to stay behind. You know what, what the heck? Well, the problem is, is that they're not realizing that we can have disruptions, so many different types of disruptions, you know, in our lives, and they have an idea that. The way that we're living life right now, that there's always going to be food in the grocery stores. There's always going to be electricity when you flip the switch. There's always going to be water when you turn on the water faucet. And so that kind of stuff, you know, it's very hard for them. They have that normalcy bias. And it's very hard for them to understand that we can have those types of things happening. You know, and so really that's kind of one view of the end of the world for Christians is that, you know, it's the end of the world and Jesus comes back. That's like a, a you know a, a pre uh, pre tribulation rapture view. There's a lot of Christians out there that believe mid tribulation rapture that we that Christians will actually go through the tribulation or go through half of the tribulation. And if that was the case, then you you would need to prepare because half of the tribulation would be three and a half years, three and a half years of uh, needing to you know be prepared, right? Or you definitely you probably wouldn't be prepared for three years. But you would want to put things in place to, to put you in a better situation where you can uh, mitigate those, those types of things. So when we talk about end of the world, it can be a very scary thing. One of the reasons why we prepare is to mitigate that fear. One of the reasons why we, we look at preparedness. Now, you never get rid of fear. This article talked a little bit about gives you peace of mind. I don't think you ever have peace of mind. You know, this was recently one of the things that uh, was brought up in the Facebook group. And so if you're a member of the Facebook group and you haven't been over there I mean, in the last two or three days, you might want to go over there and kind of follow that thread. Um, you know, a lot of people were kind of chiming in on that one. 
because when when it comes to the end of the world, there's going to be, uh, I, I guess, the, the way that we we imagine it, like the end of the world being like the EMP and all those types of things. There's going to be a lot of craziness, and that's not something that people really look forward to. Uh, it's not something that you know we we want to look forward to. We can imagine those of us who maybe have read some fictional books, those of us who maybe have seen some uh, you know end of the world type movies or whatever. Or we have a vivid imagination. We we start to imagine that the end of the world is is would be very 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 bad, and it would be hardship, and it would be uh, a lot of pain and and hurt, and people that you know uh, dying off. And, you know, from simple things, just not having food, not having clean, whatever, not having medical. And so that's not something that you really want to think about. Having, being prepared, having some supplies helps to mitigate that fear. It helps to put some things in place so that if you're in a situation, you're not like someone who doesn't have anything. You, you understand that it's important to have something. And so you realize that you are going to have some food for your family. You're going to have some food for your for your kids. You know they're not going to be looking at you like, "Daddy, what what is there to eat?" Uh, you'll have something for them, as opposed to other people who don't have anything. And so, you know, it doesn't really bring peace of mind as much as it mitigates fear and helps to give you options. And that's why preparedness is so important. So. We talk about you know the end of the world, and we, there's so many different scenarios out there. Um, you know, if you're a new prepper, don't get so worried about all the, the oh my gosh, I need to prepare for this. We always suggest that you start off preparing uh, for uh, a week. You know, when we start talking about food, food storage, prepare for a week. Get a week's worth of menu down. Then add to that. You know, d- double that. And it's very easy. Once you get a menu down, you can just start doubling and tripling, quadrupling that menu. And so very quickly, you can have a whole month's worth of just canned food in your pantry. And that's really the way to go, right? That's really the the easiest and most uh, inexpensive way, frugal way to start your food storage. And uh, I'm actually going to talk about um, food buckets and, and how to do that on the, the, the Facebook Live on Thursday. So this evening, if you're listening to this on Thursday uh, at 8 o'clock Central Standard Time, I'd love for you to be there. Um, so I'm gonna, actually going to bring out some supplies and I'm going to try as much as I can to you know, bring up those supplies to the camera and share those things with you because that is the next best option, I think, when you're trying to, to build a food supply frugally is to, uh, to do five-gallon buckets. But anyway, so I'll talk about that. But the end of the world has a lot of different connotations for different people. And so if you are new or even if you've been prepping for a while, don't let this kind of scare you. You know, realize that different people have different ideas of what that means. And you might even want to ask people, what do you mean by that? You know, uh, clarify what you mean by the end of the world. Um, It could mean so many different things. You know, I... I, I'm thinking right now of a young person that I had at church who his mom passed away suddenly in a car wreck. And that was, uh, you know, that was the end of the world for him. And it really has done him in. It's really brought a lot of pain to him. And it's really hard for him to to get over that uh, because his mom, you know, he and his mom were very, very close. And so, you know, those types of things happen while the rest of the world is going on. And, you know, we just 
imagine those things. So again, when you prepare, you mitigate that those things in your life, right? Even if it is uh, an individual, you know, into the world, you know, losing your job or you get sick and, you know, on medical leave or, you know, something along those lines that you're able to weather it a lot better, you know. And uh, so uh, we'll leave you with that. Like I said, I'm going to link to this article in the show notes and you can go check that out. Again, that's over at PreppersWill.com. Our next article comes to us from TheOrganicPrepper.com. The title is Selco, What We Ate and How We Got Food When the SHTF. And so Selko is a survivor from the Bosnian War, and he, uh, he has a blog where he talks uh, about his experiences there. And uh, so Daisy's been interviewing him and getting information. And so when I read this, uh, a lot of the times Daisy has written it the way that Selko uh, speaks. And so sometimes it's going to feel like broken English because uh, English is a sec- second language for him. And so uh, this is in an interview format a lot of the times where Daisy asks a question and then Selko will uh, respond to it. So let's go ahead and start reading this one. Editor's note. If a disaster is bad enough and lasts long enough, it isn't going to take long before there is no food to be had. In this interview with Selko, he shares his real life experiences and explains how people kept from starving to death when there was no food in the stores. How do you get food when there are no stores? At the beginning of everything, most of the people did not have any significant stash of food in their homes. In other words, the majority of common folk had food or a couple of days in their pantry, and that was it. There were exceptions to that because the process of collapse did not happen in a few hours in terms of suddenly there is no food in the stores. When the chaos started, people looted stores after a short period of everyone buying things in a panic. Still, the majority of folks did not manage to get a decent stash of food from the stores. Some did not want to believe that they were going to need a stash. Others did not want to go out and participate in looting because it was dangerous. But I think the most obvious reason was that all food from stores was taken very fast. In the beginning period of SHTF, events unfold at a very fast pace. Actually, events go one after another so fast that if you find yourself lost, In one event, at the end of several events, you ask yourself, why in the name of God I did not go out and buy a whole bunch of food while I still could do that? Was gardening an option? If so, how did people protect their gardens? Yes, it was an option, but the percentage of food from a garden was low because of a few reasons. It was a city, without enough land for significant food growing, and the second reason is that even people who had some land, small gardens near houses, needed time to grow food there. People usually did not grow food there in normal times. Flowers, tea, maybe some particular kind of tomato, salad greens, and similar. I remember going and checking gardens for tomatoes because people had tried some new sort of tomato close to their home, not as a way to have food, but as an attempt so that they could see if it was okay to have it somewhere before they had a bigger piece of land for growing before SHTF in a peacetime. So yes, gardening was an option. People used every part of the available land, but that was not enough. And it was like you were checking every day how your tomato is growing and you wait for it. But then you pick it and realize you have food for only a couple of days. We were not prepared at the time to use every piece of land for food growing. It takes time to establish that. Still, it was precious and it was protected, of course, just like your home in the same way. 
How often did MREs get dropped? There was no schedule for food drops, at least no real schedule, because it was all based on rumors like, tonight they are going to drop food from airplanes. If you ask who told you that, the answer was a guy who heard it from a guy who heard. So, of course, it was completely based on luck. Sometimes it would fall down every second night or you heard it had fallen somewhere. It would be I heard it from a guy who heard it. Sometimes it was three or four times per week. Of course, they dropped it, but that does not mean we could find any of the food. Other people would simply grab it before you. Some folks headed for the hills every night in order to wait. People would choose one guy from family to go up every night and wait. If those food drops had any schedule there where they loaded planes, as I understand later, the place was in an airbase in Italy, it was completely lost on us down in the city in the chaos and empire of rumors. You need to understand that in that time, those planes were not the only ones to fly. So sometimes we were out waiting for food, but actually other planes bombarded us. But very early we learned to recognize the low humming sound of food planes, distant but powerful. Now when I look back, it is weird how we trusted some of that information. For example, if we heard that food was going to be dropped that night in some particular part of the city, some small area of some hill, people would go there. A reasonable man would have thought, oh, so some poor ragged guy in the middle of civil war and information blockade suddenly has information on where several huge military airplanes are going to do some operation. Not to mention the fact that the whole city together with all the hills looked to those people in the airplanes like small dots. It was nonsense, but we were hungry, scared, and in the middle of chaos without any real information. So people trusted in a lot of things, especially in good news. Do not underestimate the power of rumors in hard times. Food drops were performed for many cities in this area during the hardest part of the war. They helped on different levels. Even today, I find one of the happiest sounds to be the sound of MREs raining on a hard surface. I did not know the technical details, and still don't, of how exactly that worked, but most of the things that were dropped would break apart in the air, so on the ground it would rain. It was like, or quote-unquote, rain. It was like a lottery to be in the middle of that rain because the MREs were good stuff and valuable, but some of the bigger stuff coming down could kill people. It happened with bigger packages. MREs were meals all in one package. Food, sweet stuff, matches, even that hot sauce that was pretty handy when we want to add taste to some weird food that we ate or to mask a bad taste. What food were you able to forage? When it comes to foraging for plants, I know it is a popular opinion in some circles that you can survive and live by foraging. In terms of urban survival, it is, in my opinion, overestimated if you are an average man. Maybe it would work if you have lots of knowledge about edible plants, and maybe if you have many resources of those plants and are in the wilderness. We were average urban folks. Our knowledge about edible plants was limited to one or two usable plants that could be used for homemade teas. For example, yes, we used pine needle for tea. It sounded great today. It is good healthy tea with vitamins and so on, but you cannot live on it. It can be in addition to your food, but not your main resource. Older folks jumped in with their knowledge. They were folks that in those times remembered World War II and hunger, and people usually listened to them when it came to what plants you could use for food. 
Plants like nettle and dandelion were used, and in the worst periods, people simply started to use any available grass mixed with small amounts of flour. Eating plants and herbs in that time was not a case of healthy living. It was a matter of not having anything else to eat. Were you able to scavenge for food from deserted buildings? Yes. When the SHTF, especially in the beginning, some houses became empty. People left or died inside for whatever reason, for example, shelling. Then folks would go through the empty house and scavenge for food. One memory from that time is the endless stench of rotten food. There was no electricity for the fridges. In the beginning, you could find food on that way. If you were lucky, sometimes you could find a bigger amount of food. Sometimes you came upon a house where the ex-occupant clearly hoarded food in the first days of rioting. That period of time did not last for long. The stench of rotten food was pretty much substituted with another kind of stench. Soon there were more dead people than spoiled food in the city. But even later, you would never know what you could find in destroyed and abandoned houses. Maybe few cans of food hidden or forgotten somewhere under the rubble or in a destroyed fridge. One thing interesting from that period when it comes to scavenging and also very important in prepper terms is that I witnessed and was part of something that I can call the transition of scavenging or maybe resetting the values of goods. It goes something like this. First, people ran riots on stores and looked for valuables like gold, money, TVs, stereos, cars. Then, as they realized the situation, they looked for weapons, fuel, then candles, batteries, and food. Then they dig up some gardens for a few potatoes. People needed some time to realize what was really important. It didn't take very long, but sometimes even a few days or a week is important. I have seen people running from a mall with items that in few days would become most ridiculous items to possess and to take from a burning mall. In the middle of a collapse, things like a TV or a laundry machine or a music collection of a famous band. The majority of people could not imagine what was coming, so they could not fathom that a bag full of AA batteries was going to be worth more than 50 laundry machines. For example, the laundry machine was usable only to plug a hole in the wall from shelling or to reinforce the doors. I am not advocating that you go rioting and taking stuff from malls and stores when SHTF, but let's say that if you find yourself there, think about what is useful to take in prepper terms. Here is one example. If the SHTF again here, there is a parking machine in front of my home that gives you an automatic ticket when you sin here, insert coin. As soon as I see someone busting it open to take money from inside, I will go and take the small solar panel from it. It is a solar power operated. While other people think about money inside, I am thinking about solar powered on the outside of it. Okay, this is a very interesting section here because... A lot of the times, you know, there's articles, can you make a final run to the store in, you know, in, in a collapse situation? A lot of people would say, you know, why would you want to go, you know, no, you should be totally prepared, those types of things. But a lot of the times you would possibly want to top off. So what Selko is saying is there are times where people were, you know, trying to, they were looting and they were taking stuff that didn't, wouldn't matter ultimately. And so some people need a little bit of time to realize how bad the situation is going to be. It's not a situation of, hey, this is going to, you know, this collapse situation is going to last a couple of days. The people started realizing, you know, soon 
but it still took a little bit of time that, you know, it was going to be bad. So they needed to, you know, TVs weren't important. They needed to get stuff that would help them survive. So that's an interesting take there. I wonder what that would be like here in the States if, if things would work the same way. Sometimes I think they would because people will be kind of uh, shocked. People will kind of be like, I don't know. I'm kind of waiting for the government to tell me what to think or I'm waiting to figure out what's going on. And those of the those that are a little bit more preparedness-minded are running to the store and topping off, right? All right, so uh, continuing on. Were you able to hunt or trap anything for meat? It was the city, so hunting or trapping anything more complicated than a pigeon was not really an option. The other reason was that it was city in the middle of a war, so real trapping had its own complications like shelling, constant noise, and similar. If your situation is extreme... Hunting or trapping can be about trapping pigeons or shooting a stray dog. What are some things you can eat that most people wouldn't think of as food? It is a matter of levels. Sometimes I get questions over mail asking if we had cases of cannibalism, and the answer is no. People need to realize that the road to that extreme is very, very long. There are many bad things to eat before getting to that extreme, even if you are willing to go there, and people do not realize that. I ate spoiled and old food of different kinds, expired food, cans of cookies from military storage that were expired for decades, food with worms cooked together with those expired cans, grass that was boiled in water, leaves from trees. We ate different kinds of meat, pigeon for sure, and I am quite positive cat meat once and rat meat once probably. How did you extend food to make it feed more people? Over time, it gets important to have some food, or in other words, to have your belly full for of something so easy a solution were to water food down or to mix it with plants. In other words, we ate a lot of soups. For example, if we had a small amount of meat and rice, but we had water and some plants, we would make a big pot of soup. In some cases, it looked more like tea, a lot of hot water with a small amount of food inside, but it solved the problem of how to make something big out of small amounts of something. When a situation is hard, when it is hard and demanding on both psychological and physical way, you cannot really ration yourself. You need to eat something because of the simple fact that you cannot operate if you are not fed. So we ate a lot of very low quality food and yes, we were always more or less hungry. How did you cook food without power? We cooked with fire, a stove that used wood, and often as open fire in the yard. It was a constant equation of heating and cooking with low wood resources. For example, if we needed to get a fire for heating, it was used at the same time for cooking. See Selko's article on staying warm during a long-term SHTF scenario, and there's a link here. A small open fire on the yard was used in weather when there was no need for heating. Was there a black market for food? Of course, and it was a matter that changed all the time based on what was available in the city at a given moment. For example, if food drops that week were good, you could find MREs cheaper. Other times, all you could find was suspicious-looking meat cans without manufacture or expiration dates on them. Nothing was fixed and for sure on black market, not even fact that you're going to survive the trade, not to mention other things. See Selko's article on the dangers of barter and trade. Again, it was a matter of levels, so there were people who owned the black market, people with strong organizations, firepower, and connections. 
Sometimes they dictated the pricing of food in the city, and sometimes there were common folks who could offer you a few cans of meat or two MREs from their stash. Sometimes you could run into a man who was offering you powdered eggs, but in a dark, not secure environment, you were trading with unknown armed people, for example. You needed to be sure it is not some useless powder. There were scams, and you needed to be sure who you were trading with, how secure the place was, and what you were actually trading for. How much of your time was taken up acquiring and preparing food? It was a matter of economic thinking. It was not about making it delicious because we had scarce resources like wood for fire and simply because often it was impossible to make it delicious. It was brought down to the level of getting your stomach full of something so you can continue to operate one more day. Things to know about eating when the SHTF. There are options of foraging for edible plants and hunting or trapping some animals in the city when the SHTF but do not count on that as the main resource for your food, not in the long run. Acquiring food in urban settings comes down to the idea of taking food from other people, either people that are not there anymore, empty houses, or people that are still there through the trade or attack. All of the above options, just like a lot of other prepper activities when SHTF, usually are not fancy and romantic or friendly. When scavenging through deserted places, you can get injured and that injury can get complicated when there's no medical care. During a trade, you can get scammed, ripped off, or simply attacked and injured or killed because of the resources you possess in that moment or due to a lack of careful planning. By attacking other people to get food, if you find yourself that desperate or if you wish to go that way, you are risking, of course, being killed. In the end, it comes again to the idea that you need to be prepared very well for SHTF with your stash of food or your small garden where you are going to choose what to have and how to use it in the most efficient way. You should minimize the need to go out and scavenge at least until you figure out some things. Good advice there. Definitely a reason to have a food storage uh, plan in place and uh I, you know, one of the things that he said about the soup, I really, um, you know, I, I really believe that way as well. Uh, I think that making soups is probably one way to make a lot of food last and you're able to bulk it up. So if you have beans and rice, you're able to bulk it up. And uh, if you can throw some, you know, protein in there and definitely if you have a garden with any kind of spices and stuff. So, uh, you know, I really do, um, do think that that's a viable solution? Hey, if you do come to the Facebook Live, I'm going to have a special gift for you that you can download in regards to food and recipes and things like that. So I'm going to be giving that to you. But anyway, a good article here. Um, so talking about the soups just reminded me of that. You know, like Todd, that was really random, but it just reminded me of that. And so I wanted to kind of throw that out there uh, since I talked about the Facebook Live a little bit earlier. But good article there over at uh, theorganicprepper.com. Uh, Selco always has a lot of insight. And so, uh, you know, that, that's one of those extremes. When we're talking about end of the world, that was one of those real extreme situations. So the sad thing about, about what, you know, Selco's experience here is that, you know, they were, they were in a situation where it was an SHTF situation. Um, people were losing their life. People were going hungry. All those different kinds of things. But then the rest of the world, you know, life was going on just like nothing, right? Uh, we, we were still experiencing um, life as we know it, not the end of the world as we know it. 
So that's always something to remember as well. You could be in a region where things start to break down, but the rest of the country or the rest of the world is still operating uh, you know, very easily. And in that situation, would you, I mean, that's an interesting article and an interesting thought. Would you bug out to a different country if you could? And would they even accept you if, uh, if you could make it? All right, so again, uh, I'm going to link to this article in the show notes. Because it's Thursday, every Thursday I do a conflicted scenario. Conflicted is a card game that gives you a, a scenario that your answers usually are going to be conflicted because you're going to have to make some really hard choices. This one is entitled Conflicted Pandemic Unknowns. What would you do? I'm going to read it twice for you. And like always, you can just kind of process it and just be good with it there. And you know, What would you do in this situation? Or you can come over to edthatmatters.com and drop it in uh, the comment section, you know, what would you do and kind of share that with other people. I think it's always great to read other people's perspectives on how they would handle things. Uh, sometimes people have insights that you might not have thought. One of the things that I would say is when you when you're hearing this, it's very easy to say I would never find myself in that situation. Um, but instead, why don't you, th- you know, think about it this way with the knowledge that you have of preparedness? If you were in that situation, what would you do? So with that, let me go ahead and read. Reports of an outbreak of a deadly version of the flu virus has suddenly surfaced at a city 300 miles from you. This news is two days old and no treatment or cures are available at this time. The mainstream media tries to muffle the case. The alternative media is reporting a major disaster with dozens of deaths already. The reports from different outlets are extremely conflicting. How would you go about investigating this further until you made a firm decision to bug out or stay put? Or would you even bug out or stay put? All right, so let me read it one more time for you. Reports of an outbreak of a deadly version of the flu virus has suddenly surfaced at a city 300 miles from you. This news is two days old and no treatment or cures are available at this time. The mainstream media tries to muffle the case. The alternative media is reporting a major disaster with dozens of deaths already. The reports from different outlets are extremely conflicting. How would you go about investigating this further until you made a firm decision to bug out or to stay put? So what would you do? If you go over to Ed That Matters, there is an article that I linked to um, that's called Bob's Get It Right from the Beginning. So that might be interesting for you since this is talking about bugging out. And so you can, you can kind of go and uh, click on that one as well. So uh, what would you do in that situation? How would you go about deciding are you going to hunker down or are you going to bug out and go to a safer place? And so that will be over at Edit Matters and I will link to it in the show notes. Hey guys, thanks so much for hanging out with me on episode 276. A little bit different at the beginning with that article there, but I uh, hope you enjoyed that one and the rest of the episode as well. Hey, don't forget, and we've talked a little bit about email uh, earlier in the podcast. If you are not on the email list, I invite you to come over to any of the the, the website. So at the matters, the prepper website or prepperwebsite.com or the prepperwebsitepodcast.com. And uh, you'll get the pop up where you can register for the email. When you do, you'll get enrolled into the free e course, uh, building a more self reliant life. And you'll start getting emails with lessons in your in your inbox. And so I think that's very valuable. So uh, hopefully you'll take advantage of that. Don't forget about the Facebook group. And if you haven't subscribed, we'd love for you to subscribe. And with that, Choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until next time, stay prepped and aware. Peace.